Stop the hacks. Stop the attacks. Stop the attacks and start taking your IT career to the next level. The Masters in Cybersecurity from Stevenson University Online can keep you one step ahead of the criminals and one step ahead of career advancement. Complete your online degree in as little as 18 months with convenient and affordable classes. Stevenson University Online, your partner for professional success. Visit stevenson.edu slash cyberwar. Illiberalism and the Church. This is episode 97 of En Route. to En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. This is a podcast on religion and public affairs, and I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Today, we are going to talk about liberalism. No, we are not talking about the Democratic Party. No, instead, we're talking about what has been called classical liberalism, which today's guest describes as the notion of universal human dignity. He continues by, with a definition by saying, classical liberalism holds that people have inherent worth and should invariably have the capacity to seek out the good for their lives without due, undue restriction by a government or other powerful forces. This has been part of American society since its founding. These are ideas that came from the Enlightenment. But something has changed over the last few decades with the rise of postmodernism. If you've heard the phrase cancel culture, then you know a little bit about postmodernism. The rise of philosophers like Foucault and Derrida brought about an ideology that is more concerned that is not as concerned about freedom or liberty or dignity as it is about power. This counter-narrative to classical liberalism is found in many sectors of our society, from the halls of academia to the doors of the church. I'm chatting today with David Watson. Watson's an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and he is also the academic dean and professor of New Testament at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. And he's also the lead editor of Firebrand Magazine. This is based off an article he wrote um, earlier this year um, on liberalism, and it was a great discussion. We talked a lot about the importance of liberalism in our culture and in the life of the church, and how postmodernism currently influences mainline Protestantism. So I hope that you'll enjoy it. Here's David Watson. for taking the time to, to chat on um, the issue of liberalism and the church. Very happy to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So probably the first thing to talk about is a definition of liberalism. Um, 
because of course in the American context, when we think of liberalism, we usually think of um, in a political sense or um, that that probably means uh, a Democrat or someone on the, the left, but liberalism has a, an older meaning um, or definition. Um, yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that, th- I mean, liberalism is an idea that goes back to the Enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea, what I wrote an article on this in a piece called Firebrand, in, an, in a journal called Firebrand, online journal called Firebrand. And um, it was about kind of the transformation of the term liberalism over time. And so these are ideas that come out of the Enlightenment and and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. You know, these are Enlightenment documents, the idea that there are certain unalienable rights mm-hmm. by that, that people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And so th- those are Enlightenment um, liberal ideas. Um, I should be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and you should be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And these rights cannot properly be taken away from me or taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you know, the tension comes at, at times when our visions of life, liberty, and happiness um, contradict one another, you know, and, and so then there are processes in place whereby we work these things out. And, and, you know, the thing about a democracy or a democratic republic is that nobody should get everything he or she wants, but everyone should be able to be in a place where he or she can, can pursue these values, these enlightenment values. And so that's kind of where, um, the, you know, that's what we might call classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was theological liberalism, and theological liberalism uh, was different than this because theological liberalism also came up out of the Enlightenment. It relied upon classical liberalism in order to um, get its ideas out into the public sphere. But when we talk about theological liberalism, what we're really talking about um, is a set of ideas, uh, theological claims that are different from the kind of uh, consensual claims or what we might call, I don't know what you want to call it, the great tradition, Christian orthodoxy, you know, something like that. You know what I'm getting at with this, yes. right? Um, and uh, so this really begins, I think, the, you know, the, the person that we talk about as the father of theological liberalism is Friedrich Schleimacher. And what is Schleimacher doing? He's, he's changing sort of the epistemic basis of Christian faith from divine revelation to personal experience. And this is really what theological liberalism, this was the starting move for theological liberalism, um, generally speaking, was to change the the basis of the theological claims we make from special divine revelation to something else. Mm -hmm. So it might be, you know, you, you have the Boston personalists coming out of America in the late 19th and early 20th century 
and their primary metaphysical category is personhood. Now that that gets really complicated, but they're not starting with special divine revelation. They're starting with a notion of personhood, what that means and reasoning from there. So we get um, Schleimacher, we get Richtel, we get the Boston personalists like Borden Parker Bound. We get people who are called existentialist theologians like Boltmann and Tillich. And then we get, you know, and this is really big in my tradition of, of Methodism, we get process theology. Uh, again, um, a form of Christian liberalism that just has a different way of looking at these claims that we make about God um, and Christian salvation. So, and and then I guess you want me to stop there? You want me to, well, to keep I, going? I, I guess the question is, so we have these two liberalisms that kind of stem from the enlightenment. Yes. But something changes along the way. Um, yes. And right, what was right. that change? I think it had to do with certain writers that gained prominence in the academy um, in the mid 20th century. Uh, so Nietzsche, for example, um, uh, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, um, uh, I forgot his first name, but Marcusa, mm -hmm. and uh, a few others, these, these thinkers where liberalism in the classical sense is not really at the center of the discussion anymore, that the discussions change to discussions about power. And so if you read Foucault, for example, who, by the way, Foucault's a brilliant thinker, right? I mean, the reason that people find him uh, so compelling is because there is some level of truth in his ideas. Now, I, I'm not going to go all the way down, you know, the road that he goes, but um, the man was, was very smart. And one of the things that he pointed out was that there are structures of power that are embedded in language, you know? And so, for example, one of the things that he was um, that wrote about was healthcare or um, uh, things like insanity. What do we mean by insanity and who gets to determine what that is and why do they make those kinds of determinations? And so there there are structures of power that are embedded in language and acknowledging this helps us to see kind of where um, hidden structures of power lie. There's also, you know, Nietzsche, who for Nietzsche, there's not really good and bad or right and wrong. There is simply power, the will to power. That's kind of Nietzsche's central concept. I will the world around me into being through the strength of my character. Uh, but when there's not really right and wrong and there's only power, that's, in my opinion, a very dangerous set of ideas because the, the, I don't see how the end result of that is anything except violence. Mm -hmm. So these ideas really took root in the academy. And when they took root in the academy, they began to take root in, in sort of in the elite academy, you know, the Ivy Leagues and places like that. Then they begin to take root in lots of other institutions and, for example, in government and other schools and uh, even in corporations and in the church. And so I think that these uh, philosophers have had a tremendous effect on the shape of Western society as we see it today. 
You know, in his podcast, Word on Fire, Bishop Robert Barron did a podcast on the philosophers who really kind of made our present cultural moment. And who were they? They were Marx, Sartre, Nietzsche, and I think Foucault. I think those were the four. And I think he's right about this, that that the these kinds of humanistic ideas and the obsession with power that these philosophers had have really gotten kind of gotten into the cultural soup. It's the sea we swim in now. And a lot of times we don't even really see it. How is that uh, making itself present, let's say, in our culture when it comes to um, government and policy? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of people, for example, were very concerned when uh, President Biden um, appointed a disinformation czar. Okay. Now, I was uncomfortable with that, too. And, and you know, I don't want to get overly political on your podcast or anything like that. But um, the idea of having a government official who gets to determine what is truthful and what is not truthful is really concerning to me um, as kind of a classical liberal. Mm-hmm. I think people need to be given the resources to discern these things for themselves. Now, fortunately, this didn't last very long. But this idea that there are certain ideas that have to be suppressed for the common good really comes from the philosopher Marcusa. And uh, it has a tremendous amount of purchase in the academy and in parts of government as well today. I just was listening to a podcast about um, a Princeton professor. I believe his name was Joshua Katz who was fired uh, for voicing unpopular ideas about anti-racism. Now, he's a tenured professor, okay? So that is the whole point of tenure, that you can express unpopular ideas. And if we can't express unpopular ideas, then we can't make intellectual progress. Right. You have to. We need people with whom we disagree in order to make intellectual progress. So, you know, the disinformation czar is one example of the way in which this pops up in government Um, around the world there in Western culture. There are um, an increasing number of laws restricting speech. Again, I think there's a very uh, dangerous idea. And it's very different than the Enlightenment idea of I may disagree with you about what you have to say, but I'll <clears throat> excuse me, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Voltaire's statement. Yeah, that's right. And then <clears throat> apart from government, I think, you know, when we use the word censorship, that tends to connote governmental action, but there's also more informal censorship. And we, we, that has come to be called cancel culture. So Mm -hmm. someone says the wrong thing and that person is just uh, destroyed on social media. And that can have effect an effect on people's um, jobs and other such things, their careers, their livelihood. And so I think that's wrong too. I think, I think we have to learn again to disagree with one another um, and we can disagree vehemently. We can disagree a hundred percent with one another. But rather than attempting to harm one another, or to get people fired, to get people canceled, or or something like this, 
I think what we have to do is we have to learn uh, to, we have to reclaim the idea of a public sphere, a court of public opinion where we hash out ideas and drill all the way down to the bottom of them, figure out where we disagree. And given our disagreement, how do we move forward in a way that can maybe neither of us is completely happy with, but honors our different perspectives? Why do you think that people, at least in this new way of, of seeing things, are so afraid of disagreement? What it, it seems to me, like you, that there would be a place where you could talk about these things, but there seems to be a belief that you can't talk about them at all. I think, Dennis, I think it goes back to the notion of language as power mm -hmm. and also um, a newer idea of language as violence. Um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff talk about this in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And there's a recent idea that if if I say something that you don't like or you say something that that I find offensive, that somehow we've done violence to one another. And uh, and so that what that does is that really ups the ante on what you say. It's not just that I said something that makes you mad or that I said something you disagreement disagree with, but somehow I have done violence to you. Mm. And I think we would all agree that violence is not something that we want to perpetrate against one another. Violence is something that we want to minimize in our culture. And so if language becomes violence, then we have to control language. And I just think this is a completely wrongheaded way of thinking about language. But I think that's where it comes from. And that's really embedded in a lot of our universities. So... We've kind of talked about how that is showing up in government, especially in the academy. How is that showing up in church life? And how is that especially showing up in our seminaries? Yeah, well, um, that's a very complex issue because churches differ so much from one another. Um, I know, you know, my church, the United Methodist Church, is currently uh, dividing right now. And uh, part of that is because we disagree with one another um, about matters related to LGBTQ people. But I would say a larger part of the issue has to do with the collapse of govern governance in the church. And that there are people who are charged with maintaining the order of the church who have decided that the issues involved here are so important that they can no longer do that. And so um, the order of the church has broken down and, and we kind of are run by an oligarchy now. Um, cancel culture is something that inheres within the church as much as it inheres within the secular world. And normally when we think about cancel culture, we think about progressives, but conservative Christians do this too. Mm -hmm. You know, conservative Christians, evangelicals do this as well. They identify someone, they pick someone out that they can call quote unquote liberal, whether or not that person has any <laughs> resemblance to theological liberalism or not. And then in some traditions, being labeled a liberal is the kiss of death. They can come after you. They can make this label stick, and it, it can really hurt your career. 
And in more progressive traditions, it can be the same thing. If you get kind of branded as a traditionalist or conservative or something like that, um, you can become a pariah. And, um, and I don't think that these kinds of interactions belong in the church. You know, people tend to be far more complex in their thinking than the labels that we place upon them. And so what we do when we engage in this kind of cancellation of people, we don't leave room for any kind of theological nuance. There are just these great big blunt instruments that we use to beat people up with, and then we can't really um, refine our theological positions moving forward. We have to have epistemic humility as we move forward. And that's the idea that, you know, I think I'm right about my positions, but my positions also do have to be corrigible. In other words, I have to be able to be corrected on certain things. I have to be able to admit that I'm wrong, and I really need to listen to you. I think one of the things that's missing in higher ed today is a commitment to intellectual virtue and um, kind of an allergy to intellectual vice. So intellectual virtue involves things like listening, uh, empathy, um, coherence, um, good judgment, wisdom, um, being able to, you know, fair play, um, and intellectual courage, these kinds of things. And intellectual vice would involve the opposite of these. So if I won't listen to you, if I um, can't hear anything you have to say, if I'm going to create straw man arguments around your ideas and stuff like that, that's intellectual vice. And I think the academy, including many seminaries, has really lost a commitment to intellectual virtue and um, an aversion to intellectual vice. That in a lot of places, and some of them are progressive and some of them are conservative, what you have is a commitment to ideology um, that is not tempered by a commitment to intellectual virtue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. One of the things that I have noticed over the years, and um, um, being gay myself, I've always been involved in the LGBT discussion in churches. 30 years ago, when this was an issue in different churches, um, and especially in, in congregations, there would be a, a discussion about this and maybe a vote to decide of all of this. And there was a phrase that I would hear a lot um, from people, and that was that we now have to have some healing to do, that there was a sense of trying to work out kind of the feelings and, and how people were, and, and a sense of wholeness in that after this very hard discussion. I don't hear that anymore. Um, the discussion no. now, it seems, it, it does seem to adhere towards winning and losing. And there's not really any, any regard for the person that might disagree. And in fact, we are quick to call them a bigot instead of reaching out. I mean, is that an example of what yeah. has happened over the last few years, decades? Well yeah, I think that's exactly right, Dennis. Um, and the church in America has tended to mirror the 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 techniques and the politics of the secular world. okay? So we what we see in politics today is kind of a scorched earth policy, mm -hmm. right? that um, there there is no 
compromise possible on most things. I remember when I was younger and uh, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan were running against one another for president, and you wouldn't hear a presidential candidate refer to another candidate as anything other than my distinguished opponent. Mm-hmm. And those days are are gone, yeah. right? That That anything you can do to diminish the character of your opponent is fair game nowadays. And I think rather than being salt and light in the culture, the church has simply adopted the ethos of the culture when it comes to ideological disagreement. Mm. And that's very sad uh, because uh, that capitulation of the church has severely damaged our witness and our ability to be, as you say, a healing force uh, between groups that disagree with one another in the culture. Um, churches have become far, in my opinion, far too political and far, and especially far too politically partisan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a Christian, at least from my perspective, none of the available, you know, the major available options of Republican and Democrat as they are currently construed aren't great fits. You know, the, the reason that we have these platforms well, the reasons are manifold, right? That the Democrats have their platform one way and the Republicans have their platform one way. But these platforms aren't based on some kind of principled theological reflection about right and wrong. You know, they're, ba- they're, they're built on, I mean, some of it has to do with right and wrong, but some of it has to do with simply maintaining power. In fact, a lot of it probably has to do with that pleasing our constituencies, speaking to our bases and these kinds of things. And I just think the church has given up its prophetic witness as being able to stand over against the political world and say, you know, we can agree with you here, but we don't agree with you here. And we think there needs to be reform. And, you know, to capitulate and and or participate in kind of the hateful rhetoric that characterizes our political discourse today, which many Christians seem completely happy to do, I think is an abdication of of the church's prophetic place within the culture. Why do you think that we have given up that prophetic role? It, it just seems like we want to just go with the flow. Um, to to be honest, well, I think there has been a myth a damaging myth within America for a long time that we are a Christian nation. I'm not sure when we've ever been a Christian nation. Um, If you look at, I mean, America has done some wonderful things. I am not anti-American at all. I am very pro-America, but we've also done some terrible things in our history. I don't need to go through the litany of all that. And ostensibly Christian people, have at times been responsible for these terrible things. Okay. And our founding documents, you know, you wouldn't have the enlightenment ideals without Christianity, but our founding documents are not really Christian documents. They're enlightenment documents. They're liberal, classically liberal documents. And so nevertheless, there's been this, this myth in the culture that we are a Christian nation. And if you are a Christian nation, then what the nation decides to do must be Christian. And so we've, we've gotten our categories confused in this regard. 
And once we began to think of ourselves in this way, once this this myth kind of settled in to the general thinking in the country, then the church sort of lost its role as cultural critic and became more of a cultural vehicle. I think this has been devastating for the American church. And it's been so easy to be a Christian here. Now that's changing. You know, there's certainly more animosity towards Christianity than at any point in my lifetime. I'm 51 years old. But nevertheless, it's still, comparatively speaking, pretty easy to be a Christian. We're not facing persecution, you know. Um, I know people say that at times we are, and perhaps someday we will, but I have a student from Myanmar, for example. They're facing persecution. Like, really, his family has been, you know, chased out and shot at, chased into the woods, and uh, churches burned down and these kinds of things, you know. That's persecution. What we're facing right now is some cultural pushback, and some of that cultural pushback we've actually earned. But um, but some of it we have. Some of it is not fair. And so I think that we have to learn to be a separate thing again. We can't just be the Democrat Party at prayer, the Republican Party at prayer. We have to dec- reclaim our distinctiveness in the midst of this culture, stand over against our political parties and say, yes, I will agree with you here. Yes, I will not support you here. And um, and base our ideas on, first and foremost, our theological principles and not on what helps us to gain ground politically. So I don't know if you have read the um, article in The Atlantic by Tim Alberta um, that was called, the, I believe it was called The Poisoning of the Evangelical Church. Um, it's a fascinating article. Um, and it talks about, I didn't read it, Dennis, okay. but I heard him speak about it on oh, okay. Goldberg's podcast. Yeah. Okay. And it, it, it is a really, um, if you had the time, I would definitely read it because he talks about, um, especially one pastor in Michigan um, who has, his church has grown considerably because of COVID and um, the lockdowns and people were going to his church and um one of the things that I, I find fascinating is that what he says when he enters, you enter the church, you don't see a cross anywhere, but you see right. a lot of American flags. Yeah. And there's something interesting about that, um, that there is a, a kind of a surrender to culture over Christ in, in some ways. 100%. Um, not in every church, you know, but yeah, in some definitely. churches. And it's it's progressive churches, it's yes. conservative churches, you know, it's across the board. We have a surrender and you see secular cultural symbols in the church all the time. And, you know, I, I go back a lot to Stanley Hauerwas. He's a guy who uh, had a big influence on my thinking theologically. I never really even met the man. Uh, I just think he has a brilliant theological mind. And you know, he would say again and again, you know, the the role of the church is to tell the truth. And the church has to be the church. We can't try to be anything else. And so once we kind of are willing to outsource our 
ethical positions, our worldview, the aspects of the secular culture, that we're not even in the game anymore. We've, we have forgotten how to tell the truth. The church has to tell the truth. And the truth is that within our political parties, both of our political parties, there are some really rotten things. And if we can't call that out because we're so interested in making political gain, then we um, then we're completely irrelevant to what's going on in the political world. You know, um, for example, it's very hard right now to be a pro-life Democrat. I think there there may be only one or two actually in government right now. But why is that? You know, why should it be the case that you can't be a Democrat and also be pro-life? When did it when did that become constitutive of being a Democrat? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It just sort of happened gradually. But I think the church needs to stand up and say, yeah, there there is a place for that in every political party. There should be a place for pro-life people. You know, the church is a place that lifts up life. And and I'm not just simply talking about the abortion debate. I'm talking about it in a lot of different ways. The church as a truth teller uh, should be a community of people who lift up life. And so the, the capacity to kind of speak against the paucity of pro-life Democrats or you know, or or Republicans who who do things that I mean, for example, um, you know, this this guy that's on Twitter all the time, this Greg Locke guy oh, yeah. um, that's on Twitter all the time, you know, um, for a lot of people, I think he embodies what the church is today uh, because all they know about the church is what they see on Twitter. And I find that heartbreaking because I don't recognize what he's doing as Christianity. And I think Christian leaders have to be vocal in saying, that's not what we believe. You know, that's not, we hope he repents. You know, I don't, I don't want to beat him up. I don't want to cancel him. I just want to want him to repent. And I think we have to distance ourselves from that and say, that's not us. That's not what we're about. So, um, but he has so closely tied his, ecclesiology such as it is with his politics that um a lot of people are going to see that and think well you know christianity is just part of an extreme wing of the republican party and i i think that's tragic so how do we try to reclaim some of this reclaim some parts of classical liberalism uh, become uh, the church becoming a truth teller again um because it does seem like we've obviously drifted away from that, but it also feels like we've drifted really far from that. So yeah, how do we get back on the, with the right track? You know, I, I expect people, I, I, okay, let me back up on this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think we have to have higher expectations of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think as the dissonance between the church and the secular culture grows more evident, it will probably be easier to reclaim our distinctive voice. But I think we've got to get these ideas out there that um, 
Christians are supposed to be different. In capitulation, the complete capitulation by Christians to different political parties or different ideological factions is unacceptable. Now, when you, I've written this kind of thing on a number of occasions, and when you say this or when you disagree with someone's preferred political candidate, they are going to come after you viciously. And they're going to try to cancel you and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, what I want to say to people who might be thinking about writing in this way is refuse to be canceled. It takes courage in order to reclaim the voice of the church as a distinct voice within our culture. Mm-hmm. And so refuse to be canceled. When people beat you up, when people call you names, when people do all kinds of things like this, keep writing and keep pushing, keep getting your voice out there because what they want to do is they want to silence you, right? They want you to be quiet. They don't want you to say these things they disagree with. And so you can't be quiet. And that means you have to be willing to put up with all kinds of nonsense on social media about it. Um, so, you know, prophets weren't always very popular people, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they would, they would, they would, they would, Speak truthfully, and and people would come against them, and that's that's going to happen now too. So reclaiming the distinctiveness of the Christian witness is going to be extremely important, and speaking those things into the public sphere is going to be extremely important. And then finally, refusing to um, engage in the kinds of public you know, the the kinds of techniques that people use to silence other people, calling them names and canceling them and peer pressuring them and other things like that is also going to be important for the church today. When I get on social media, I wonder why any, any non-Christian would become a Christian today. Because the, the Christians, a lot of us Christians are just really mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know claim to have the entire Christian life figured out, but I don't think Christians are are supposed to be just spitefully mean. And so it's okay to be truthful and it's okay to be direct, but don't say things intentionally that you know are going to embarrass or hurt other people. So our public witness really does matter. You know, it 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 lends or detracts from the credibility of what we say we believe. Hmm. Um, are you aware of a um, writer by the name of um, John Pavlovitz? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts about him? Um, because I've always, there are people who I know who love him, and I don't find him, I don't enjoy reading him. Um, you, you kind of talked about people being mean and he kind of comes off that yeah, way. I yeah. mean, some of what he talks about, I can understand the, where you want to be critical and, and I get that. Yeah. But it almost becomes personal. And, yeah. and that's yeah. where I just don't find that Christ-like. Well, I haven't read a lot of his articles, Dennis. I've read some of them and I kind of have the same impression that you do. And, and please hear me in saying what I'm, I'm not saying that Christians always have to go out there and be quote unquote nice people. No, right, no. right. Um, because sometimes there is the need to speak directly 
Sometimes there is even a need to speak harshly to people. But, but I don't want to speak in ways that diminish people, okay, that embarrass people. I want to be, as a writer, I want to be as truthful as I can be, but I also want to be as honoring of other people as I can be, even when I disagree with them. I try to embody that in my, maybe I don't succeed all the time, but someone like um, Pavlovitz that you mentioned, I don't think that he embodies that very well. And so, you know, I mean, not that he cares what I think. I mean, he's a much more popular writer than I am, but, you know, were he to ask me, I would just say, listen, you know, you need to get your ideas out there. You need to be able to, to say what you believe is best for the life of the church. But I would encourage you to do so in a way that dignifies people rather than tears people down. Um, some of the talk that we've been talking about is, you know, dealing with how do we kind of regard culture. Yeah. And what that makes me think about is um, the book Christ and Culture by H. Richard yeah. Niebuhr. Sure. Where do you think that that book fits in with some of this? Boy, that is a complex question, Dennis. You know, where he ends up is kind of Christ the transformer. He goes through all the options, then he ends mm -hmm. up with Christ the transformer of culture. Okay, so we can look at some ways in which Christ has been the transformer of culture. For example, women's suffrage, um, child labor laws, the civil rights movement. You know, these began as Christian movements. Uh, they have Christian origins. And in those ways, Christ did, in, in very important ways, transform culture. But maybe what Niebuhr didn't see is the extent to which culture would transform the church. Hmm. And it's been a two-way street in a lot of ways. And today, I don't think that the church is having a transformative effect on the culture at all. I think that the, the church is being transformed by the culture much more than it's transforming the culture. And unless the church can reclaim its distinctive voice, um, we're in a lot of trouble. But so, you know, obviously Nieb the Niebuhrs, both of them, I mean, they're brilliant, right? They're, they, they are um, incredible theologians, incredible thinkers, powerful minds. Um, but I think on that issue, it would have, it was just, I don't think that Niebuhr could see what was coming in terms of how hard the church was going to get hit in this sort of um, pressure to capitulate to aspects of secular culture. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and here's the thing, right? Like culture isn't one thing. Culture in the United States is a lot of different things, isn't it? Right. The, mm -hmm. the culture at you know, Greg Locke's church is going to be 100% different than the culture at, say, Glide Memorial Church in, in San Francisco. You know, um, the culture in Appalachia is completely different than the culture in New York City. And so there, there are lots of different cultures, and it's a, it's a pretty complex term. But, you know, I'm enough of a traditional Christian that I still believe in original sin, and I think the world has fallen. And so I don't think that that's why one of the reasons that's a theological basis for my reasoning that the culture can't be our guide. You know, I think that that we still have to root our beliefs in divine revelation. And 
uh, the way in which God has disclosed himself to us helps us to make sense of our lives and the lives of other people around us. It helps us determine the way in we should live, the way we should treat other people, the way we should act, et cetera, et cetera. And as, as the West, broadly speaking, the various cultures of the West have become more secularized, I really think that we have lost a profound sense of human dignity. And the loss of human dignity means that I don't have to pay attention to you or you don't have to pay attention to me. If I don't, if I don't regard you as being created in the image of God, that significantly disincentivizes me to treat you as well as I possibly can. You know, whether we agree with one another or whether we disagree with one another, Christ was pretty clear that we have to love each other, mm -hmm. right? So one of the disciplines that I've been trying to do is to uh, pray for people that I know don't like me. Mm -hmm. uh, are they my enemies? Well, they certainly act like it sometimes, you know. And that's hard. I don't like doing that prayer, you know. And sometimes I just have to pray, God, I don't even know what this person's need. I don't know what this person's problem is, but you know. And so bless this person in his or her life in the ways that you know that he or she needs. Um, and maybe that is kind of the weakest possible form of praying for your enemies, but some sometimes um, that's all I can muster. But the reason that I do that is because of a theological conviction that people are created in the image of God, that God cares about the people that I don't like or people who are hostile to me, and Christ has commanded me to pray for them, and so out of obedience, I'm going to do that. And I think if more of the church would take up that discipline, we might find ourselves in a different place today. So do you see any examples of communities or people that are kind of going against the grain and trying to be an effective witness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think in, in lots of different aspects of Christianity in the West, you do see this, right? There, there are Roman Catholics who are, there are Methodists, there are UCC people, there are Baptists, you know, who, Mennonites in particular, you know, who are uh, simply dedicated to living differently and to, to being salt and light. Um, but that takes a lot of discipline. It takes self-discipline and it takes community discipline to do that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it takes a very particular understanding of the church and the distinctiveness between uh, the church and the world that is not the church. So, yeah, I think there are people doing it. I see pockets of this a lot, um, but I can't identify a tradition with the possible exception of, of groups like Mennonites um, or, you know, an, a very obvious example is the Amish, but who who have this sense of distinctiveness from the world. You know, I, I have a Mennonite colleague, a preaching professor, and, and, you know, it's just fascinating for me to have theological conversations with her because her... Um, her theological perspective is so deeply shaped by this notion of being a distinctive community, and I really value that about her. Hmm. So where do you think the future goes um, with the church, and how do we deal with this kind of growing illiberalism? Do you see it getting worse before it gets better? 
I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Has it reached its peak? I'd be interested to know what you think about that as well. I hope that it has. I mean, I see signs of hope out there. You know, there, for example, I really love this thing that Cornell West and Robert George do, where they go to different places and they're, they're really good friends, but they have vastly different ideas from one another. And they, they demonstrate how you can agree and still love one another. Okay. So, you know, for me, that's, that's a sign of hope. Um, and, and there have been some other things that have happened as well. Um, so I don't want to give the idea that I think all is lost or that, you know, liberalism is entirely dead or something like that. I think people, a lot of people have kind of woken up to the idea that liberalism is in trouble. Liberalism, like kind of classical liberalism is in trouble and we do have to defend it. So, no, I... You know, and, and then you have these these really interesting publications like like Quillette, for example. I mean, you can't put Quillette in one single category, right? It's not a liberal publication. It's not a progressive publication. It's not a conservative publication. It really is kind of dedicated to the to the free expression of ideas. And and I really appreciate that about it. So if you listen to Quillette, you, you know, their podcast, for example, you don't have to listen to very long. You'll find something you really disagree with strongly, but you'll find other ideas that you think, wow, that's really right. And and that, in my opinion, is we need more of those kinds of forums. So I don't think that, you know, I think liberalism is in trouble. I don't think that liberalism is dead. And I, I'm very hopeful that we can um, reclaim some of the lost ground some of the ground that we've lost in post-modernity. I think you had asked about what I'm seeing. And I think yes, yes. Right now, it's not good in, in my viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, again, I think especially on issues um, such as um, race or sexuality, I think especially... Um, mainline Protestantism, but I think throughout the church, it's really also within evangelicalism as well. We're not really listening to the other side right. and we are not cultivating um, that kind of gift or, 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 or ability to listen um, to the other side. I yeah. think a lot of it is that kind of words is violence. Um, and I see that especially when we're dealing with issues surrounding sexuality and i've seen that for 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 10 years or so um which i find hard because you can't move forward if you can't let the other side talk or yeah. if you find the other side dangerous right so i don't see it as right now as hopeful that doesn't mean that i i don't think there's any hope it's just that i haven't seen very many examples of the church being willing to really stand out outside of kind of the, the cultural milieu and and try to be something different um, to have a distinctive voice yeah um so i'm not i don't want to make it sound like i'm i'm without hope it's just that i i have not seen it as much sure yeah well i do want to say dennis i've followed you on twitter for a long time and i really appreciate your public witness on twitter and the way that you conduct yourself on twitter and and your openness to being in discussion with with all kinds of people, and and I think that's a really good model. Well, I think that's important. And it is, yeah. You know, 
I think the whole concept of uh, loving our enemies is is important. Um, and it means yeah. caring about people who you may not always agree with. And mm-hmm. I think you are correct in saying we've really lost that sense of um, the dignity of the of people, of the human yes. beings. Yeah. Um, and we need to recapture that. Yes, we do. We do. That's so important. And it would help us in so many areas of public life. Exactly. You know, I, I think. You know what? I, I've been thinking about writing an article um, called No Lives Matter. And, the, you know, because because the way I see it in Western culture, we have lost a sense, not completely, but it has really diminished the sense of the sacredness of life the value of life. Life is increasingly cheap. Mm-hmm. And that's very dangerous. That's, that's, you know, that reminds me of kind of the pre-Christian Roman empire. And that that's a very dangerous place to be. And we're con- consistently desensitized to it. So, you know, we, <clears throat> in the last few weeks, you know, we've had two, uh, last few weeks, we've had two very, at least two very brutal uh, terrible, tragic shootings, one of them in an elementary school. Uh, my God, I can't even fathom the tragedy of that. But there have been so many of these now that we're almost numb to them. And I mean, it just seems to happen again and again and again and again. And I don't know what the answer is on this. But I do think that the church has to has to reclaim its voice and speak into these situations and say, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, this is not okay. And we have to have some way of moving forward that, that protects our people and protects our children. Mm-hmm. It just, it's again and again, it's not a one-off thing. No. And, and so increasingly, you know, we live in this, this culture of death and if the church isn't going to stand up in the midst of this and proclaim life, then who is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to these mass shootings, um, almost to a fault, all the people who were involved, the shooters, people saw signs ahead of time. Um, <laughs> There yeah. were things that were, were happening, but for whatever reason, either people didn't, uh, you know, like agencies didn't communicate with one another, but there were cases where actual people could see what was going to happen and they didn't do anything. Right, right. And there seems to be in this culture not enough concern for people that they're yes. willing to step in and help. Yes. And so then these things happen and we're all shocked, but yeah. the signs have been there for a long time. Right. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. It's, it seems to be getting worse. Mm-hmm. It does. And so it, you know, it's scary. And so, so I think that this could be the moment for the church to step up and say, you know, and there are a whole host of issues related to human life. I mean, evangelicals, you know, we tend to focus on things like we, we tend to focus on abortion. Right. I mean, evangelicals love to talk about abortion and abortion is an important issue. Right. I don't even want to diminish that. 
at all. Um, I've been a, um, a pro-life advocate within my denomination. And, but at the same time, there are a lot of other issues related to life that we're just not talking about. What do we think about, for example, um, the death penalty and the way and sort of the ways in which it is, has been at least improperly and um, uh, unequally administered to people of color? You know, what do we think, for example, about um, gun violence and the church's role in um, advocating for policies that will make gun violence less less common, especially these things like mass shootings? You know, what do we think about end of life issues? I, I recently wrote a, wrote a piece on medical aid in dying. That's what it's called now. That's the euphemism for assisted suicide now. And in my opinion, this is extremely dangerous and vulnerable populations are, are now in incredible danger because of the increasing availability of medical aid and dying. And I'd say that the Roman Catholic Church, in many ways, has done a pretty good job of speaking about these issues. But pro- we Protestants, we've, we've not been good at this. We're really behind. And, and so we've got to find our voice on these matters and hold up the dignity of human life. Just say it's not okay. It's not okay to have a single more mass shooting. It's not okay to kill our old people or our sick people. You know, nine-month pregnancy abortion, regardless of what, where you stand on matters of choice, is not okay. And, and if the church won't do that, again, I go back to this, you know, if the church won't do this, then who's going to? Another issue that's a big deal for me because I have a son with Down syndrome is the eugenic elimination of people with Down syndrome in utero. You know, prenatal testing um, gives you a diagnosis that says this child is going to have Down syndrome. And then people within the medical community often strongly advise abortion. To me, that is unconscionable. Where is the church standing up to this, especially the Protestants? I mean, they're standing up um, many Protestants are standing up on issues related to abortion, but but that particular issue, and don't think it's going to stop there. Don't think it's going to stop with people with Down syndrome. The more that prenatal testing um, becomes widely, like as it becomes more sophisticated, more groups are going to be eliminated in utero. So, you know, the church, the ch- this could be the moment for the church. This really could be. But the question is, will we do it? Mm-hmm. And of course, Paul, that means that we have to be willing to step out of the yes of the, basically the the culture um, that wants us to act in a certain way. And yes, the fact is, we all are tempted to want to follow along and conform. Yes, that's right. We like to be comfortable, and we've been very comfortable Christians for a long time in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's changing. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's uncomfortable, but I think yeah. it be, <laughs> it's probably yeah. a good thing. Some discomfort can be good. Well, thank you so much. This has been a, a really um, enlightening conversation. Um, I won't say it, it was optimistic, but it's hopeful. <laughs> um, 
yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you talked about um, Cornell West, and I think I remember him saying something that he is not an optimistic person, but he's, in the whole, he's a hopeful person. And I, I tend to agree with him. That yeah, me too. Yeah. Yes. Well, Dennis, thank you for having me on and initiating this conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with you. I, I do as well. And I hope that we can um, come back and discuss some other topics in the near future. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank you. You're welcome. God bless you. Take care. close out this episode, I want to ask a favor. In light of the recent shootings in Buffalo and Givaldi, Texas, I think it's important and I'd like to have a, an actual conversation about guns. And not the usual where we kind of, it's usually just one side and we're kind of saying the other side are bad people, but maybe actually to talk to someone. I the person actually I want to talk to is a person of faith that maybe is a hunter um, or just in, in general, someone that grew up around guns. This is a, a voice that we don't hear much in these debates. Um, we just don't hear much about responsible gun owners who probably do favor some legislation that would maybe restrict the use or um, try to just at least find some ways of, of tackling gun violence. And I think that it's even more rare to talk to someone who thinks like this, who's a regular churchgoer. I think that it's a voice that needs to be heard um, instead of kind of the same voices that we hear over and over. So I'd like to find that person um, or persons. So if you know of someone that fits this bill, um, please send me an email and you can send that email to hello at endroutpodcast.org. And maybe that's even you. Um, if it is, I'd like to hear from you. Um, like I said, I really want to have a discussion. I think too often what we have are not discussions, but it's kind of people yelling at one another or, or yelling to people that they already agree with about how the other side is bad. And I'd like to actually talk about this because if we can actually talk about this maybe we can actually solve it that is if we want to solve it um, finally if you uh, want to receive the latest episode of the podcast uh, via email um, you can use a link in um, the show's description to get on the mailing list and then finally that if you like what you hear um, I'd ask that you consider supporting the podcast with a one-time tip, or maybe it's a regular donation that's on a monthly basis. Um, whatever you want to do, um, you can do that by going to enroutepodcast.org backslash donate. Well, that is it for this episode of Enroute, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. 
I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and see you soon. Thank you.